Hello, everybody. I'm Kim Scott. And I'm Wesley Faulkner, Kim's co-host. And today with us, we are lucky to have Dr. Tina Opie, uh, who I love. Uh, She is an associate professor of management, an award-winning teacher and researcher, consultant and speaker. She is the founder of Opie Consulting Group, LLC, where she advises large firms in the financial services, entertainment, media, beauty, educational, and healthcare industries. Her research has appeared in such outlets as O Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, Harvard Business Review, and she has been published in multiple academic journals. She is also a regular commentator on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast and Greater Boston's NPR affiliate television station, WGBH. And she and I recently did a talk together at Inbound. Tina, it's great to have you here. Kim and Wesley, it is wonderful to be here with you all. It, it really is. I'm so excited. We're going to have a good time. So we, I think we should talk about how you and I met before we jump into the reading. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Because I was, I, I was doing a, talking about just work, which we are going to start calling radical respect every time now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that I was not, I was not, clear enough, even in that book, which was a response to my not having been clear enough in radical candor about the different intersections and who it is easier and who it is harder for. Uh, And you gave me some feedback that was very helpful. And we became friends. We did. We did. I mean, thanks to the critical feedback. So thank you, Tina. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I, I think I remember I want the audience to recognize that even though I'm an author, Kim's an author, Wesley is an author and accomplished, I'm sure, in in many different ways, whenever you have that thought bubble, like, dang, do I say something or not? Because when we were talking, and and what I've said, Kim and I have talked about this before, and we were talking a little bit before we started uh, the podcast, there's general advice that sounds like common sense, but you know, we, we put a lot of research and effort into studying it. But then sometimes we have these phrases that we say, just stand up. Well, sometimes if you stand up, you get your head cut off. Yeah. You get fired. And so it's, as you mentioned, it's important to take an intersectional lens. And I know that some people may not agree with that word or disagree. All it means is that no one category means the same thing for all people. So yeah. being a woman, being a white, being a woman. So we say we're all women, but if you're a white woman and I'm a black woman, or this person is a trans woman, it means different things depending upon what Kimberly Crenshaw and, and others, the Combahee River Collective, they talked about this, intersecting kinds of oppression. Yeah. And that affects the way that you experience that category. So with that, so that's why when people say the word women, people, when they've done research, a picture of a white woman comes to mind. If they say men, a white man. If they say gay men, a white gay man comes to mind. So there are these prototypes. And, and this is, in fact, connected to some of what you talk about when you get into bullying and prejudice and stereotyping and bias. Those things are sort of interconnected in the way that we think about each other. And so when you and I first met, 
I had to decide if I was going to say anything when I had that first bubble. And I was like, well, in the spirit of radical candor, (laughs) I am going to share privately. And I do think we can even get into the way that I did that. I chose not to on a public forum. We were on, I don't know if we can say the name of where we were. Clubhouse, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we were on Clubhouse during the pandemic. Yeah. And I chose not to say it in front of the room of all those people. Yeah. We reached, I reached out privately. I mean, I might've said something publicly in the room, but then got into more detail later. And I think that's also connected to radical cancer as, because I care about you as an individual. And so I yes. didn't want in any way for that to feel, you know, threatening. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I wish that we had met sooner because one of the things you said to me is you really should have co-authored this book with someone. You shouldn't have tried to write this book alone. And you were right about that. I wish, I wish I hadn't uh, tried to write it alone because like as a white woman, I was like, I felt on the one hand, I had no standing to write this book. I didn't have the right to write this book. And I also felt at the same time, I had a greater obligation to write the book. And like, that could lead that I think that sort of tension made itself felt in the book. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I wrote Shared Sisterhood with my yes. co-author, and the idea for Shared Sisterhood is like 15 years old. But when I, you know, I have a white paper that's really old. I didn't write the book though until I had a white woman who yeah. I could trust. Because I try I tried to write it by myself. And I was like, girl, you cannot write a book about sisterhood by yourself. It just doesn't make sense. You need to have a sister that yeah. you can that you can write with. And that had to be someone who I trusted, someone who was also theoretically and research minded. And that was Beth, someone who I've gotten to know over the over the decades. Um, and we're friends. You don't have to be a friend to co-author, but we happen to be. It helps for sure. Well, it does because we had, I mean, people see us and they think that we're disagreement free. That is not true. Yeah. We have have good conflict. We have conflict. We don't have, we don't tend to have relational conflict. We have task conflict. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how do we accomplish this goal or, or pursue this task most effectively. And because we have very different backgrounds, we may have different perspectives on how to do that. Yeah. So yeah. we have to, you know, work through those things. And I think that leads to a stronger book. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. Um, all right, we can talk, I could talk to you all day, but should we jump into the reading and you can sure. give me some more radical candor? All right, here I go. I'm going to do the reading. This is from the prejudice section. Prejudice, how leaders can prevent it from ruining respect. What if the issue isn't unconscious bias, but a very consciously held prejudice reflecting a stereotype you believe is inaccurate and unfair and that people on your team find offensive? What can you as a leader do about that? The first thing to do is manage your own emotions. Prejudice can induce a strong response. Incredulity, disgust, rage, impatience, avoidance. Take a deep breath. You can't control what the people who work for you think, Mm -hmm. but on your team, you are free. Sorry, I'm going to start over. People on your team are free to believe whatever they want, but they are not free to impose their beliefs on others. Your job is to work with your team to identify and articulate where that line is, what is okay to say and do at work and what is not. The trouble comes when you're the one charged with deciding 
when the murky line between freedom to and freedom from has been crossed. Mm. This is one of the toughest challenges you'll face as a leader. It's a leader's job to create an environment where people can work with one another productively. Prejudice, a belief that some sort of false stereotype is actually the truth, is inherently disrespectful. It gets in the way of the team's ability to collaborate, to honor one another's individuality, to communicate ac across differences. Pointing out a prejudice probably isn't going to change it. When leaders teach their teams to hold up a mirror to a person's bias, they typically self-correct. But in the case of prejudice, if you hold up a mirror, the person is likely to say, yeah, that's me. Aren't I good looking? The person with the prejudice belief doesn't acknowledge the prejudice. Rather, they think it's the truth. What then can a leader do when one person's prejudiced belief gets in the way of their ability to respect others on the team or even creates a hostile work environment? I don't have the answer to this question, but there's one thing you can do to improve your odds of arriving at a good outcome. Create a space for conversation. When you spend a little time with your team talking about what is okay to say or do and not okay to say or do on your team, you'll build an important conflict resolution muscle. You don't have to come up with a rationale that would satisfy a philosopher in order to figure out how to work better together. There are resources out there that can help. You can hire someone with experience to guide you through the conversation or turn, turn to some of the articles mentioned in the end notes. All right, I'll stop there. Lay it on me. What do you all think? Wesley, you can go first. I was thinking about the harm reduction in terms of people um, who want to express themselves. But when you're thinking about being the referee between freedom from and freedom to, yeah. that there needs to be a real feeling of respect and also a feeling of regret when harm is caused. Yeah, um, I was thinking about when my son was just maybe just a little over one years old, just learning how to walk. And he would do this thing where he would just, you know, barely get up and then yeah. he'll walk towards me and then trip over my big feet and then fall to the ground and then give uh -huh. me a look of horror and disgust. Like how could it. you have done that to me? Yes. Yeah. Like I was the one that tripped him <laughs> and some people react with, I didn't do anything. And, yeah. but what you should do is have care and concern. And I think that's the same when, if someone's coming to work wearing, let's say uh, a Trump shirt and someone else is offended by it, then you have to understand like, is me wearing this shirt as important as the harm I'm doing to someone else who reacts? Yeah. And if you're like, I don't care about that other person, that really makes it solidified in your choice. But if you're like, you know what, you know, I really support this person, but I see it's hurting someone else that I work with. So I can choose not to wear it because then you don't need a referee in that point. Because once someone says I'm harmed, they're like, okay, I understand. Or I don't understand, but I don't want to cause harm. And so I think that is the balance thing that if, if people really don't care about how other people feel, you know, F your feelings kind of a thing, then that makes that conversation so much more difficult. So much more difficult. Yeah. yeah. And, and I agree with that, Wesley. And, you know, my mind is going into 
where are the boundaries of that? So what if I have on a good time shirt or a shirt where there's a person with an Afro? Or what if I'm combing my hair with a black power fist and someone says that's offensive to me? It really is interesting to start thinking through what what are the gradations when it comes to someone else is offended. I have offended people by walking into the room. And so I think sometimes it, what would you all, how would, what would you say to that? How do we, my very presence or the notion that there is something that is a different, somebody might have a different value system than what someone else does, isn't it itself offensive? How do we respond to that? I know that's a little bit tangential, but I think it's important because in this increasingly polarized world, we may objectively, you know, I'm stirring my my tea with this spoon. This is an objective spoon, but for someone else, if it's offensive, what do we do then? Yeah, and that was interesting. You, you turned it around. It's very different on one side than the other, the spoon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm like... Yeah. yeah, so I think... I So I was working with one leader who was struggling with this, and, and I'll just describe where this leader drew the line for, for her team, and you can tell me what you all think. Um, what this leader said is, and this was in 2016, uh, and this leader said that people were not allowed to wear MAGA hats or Trump paraphernalia mm-hmm. um, or, or Biden, either one, like no political, but they were allowed to wear Black Lives Matter uh, because Black Lives Matter was a human, and, and this leader explained it. To me, Black Lives Matter is a humanitarian movement, mm-hmm. and we're all for that, but I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want political speech emblazoned on people's clothing at work. Um, and like, I happen to think that was a good, I happen to agree with that. I don't know what you all think, but what you, what, to me, the, the even more important than the decision um, was that it was clear. Okay. People, you know, um, like, uh, so I'll throw out another totally different example and maybe you all will wish I hadn't, but like, <laughs> I, I would never go to work for Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't do it, but they have their policy. They made it clear. And so now I know not to go to work there. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I would rather that, that if that is the policy, I'd rather it be explicit. Like they drew the line. They said, it, this is our belief. And we think that, you know, you're imposing your belief on us. If I'm going to present my point of view, if you, uh, if you act out your human rights, but, you know, but whatever, like I can abide by this, the, the, I disagree with the Supreme court ruling, but I can abide by it at least, at least where the line is for Hobby Lobby and where the line is for my friend. And they're drawn in different places. Yeah. What if a, a an all lives matter shirt with or paraphernalia would that be allowed in the same? No, because all lives business? matter is not a human rights movement. It is a denial of uh, of Black Lives Matter. But okay, see, so don't you think that some people would think that that is a political argument? Yes, they would. But you know what? Like the the leader made it clear. <laughs> so, no, and, and, and listen, I happen to agree. Yeah. I happen to agree. But I, I really do think it's important for us as leaders and people who are helping organizations design their cultures to have these conversations because yes. you yeah. believe 
Yeah. Especially given that we're about to have a presidential election. There's a lot of things yes. are going to proliferate and emerge and surface or resurface. Yeah. And so it's important. That, that's why I wanted to ask that specific question. And, and that's something that I, I do like about you know, that excerpt in the book in general is that you're very good at parsing, at detailing, you know, this is bullying, this is prejudice, this is bias, mm-hmm. this is discrimination. I think it's important whether or not we agree with your definitions. Yes. They're clear. No, yeah. really. And I think when we enter into a conversation, that's one of the first things we have to do is let's lay the table, let's set the table and define the key terms that we're using. Because sometimes it's impossible for people to just work because they're speaking a different language. Yes. So I really, I really like that about that excerpt as well as your book is that you're very clear. I mean, you're like prejudice is meaning it. Um, yeah. And anyway, I have, I have all kinds of thoughts because uh, I mean, and I can share my story as well, but um, anyway, I will stop rambling. We could talk all day. We could, and I, I would like to, but I want to know, Wesley, I cannot read your expression, but I'm dying to know what you're thinking. As a person who his job is, I'm a senior community manager. So in terms of policy, it's not whether you do the right thing or the wrong, or I mean, doing the right thing is, of course, is something you want yeah, to do, it's important. but but you also, it's extremely important how you do it. Um, yeah. And there is an inherent resistance to some top down, um, mm. like things that are pushed that might feel oppressive to some people. So it's important to really not only feel like people have the opportunity to have a dialogue in the decision making yes. process, but also that um, that when it's disseminated, it is explained in the verbosity that is needed to make sure that you're covering the nuance that is needed. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just in a meeting today and and we were uh, trying to solve an issue and someone would start off an answer as in let's just, and then say something. And giving simple, there aren't really simple solutions for complex problems. Uh, And making sure that there is enough wiggle room and but but that being uh, very defiant and being very authoritarian sometimes just gets rejected, especially in the culture of this country. So Mm -hmm. um, it's it's like I said, it's it's important to do the right thing, but it's important to deploy it and do it in a way that people still feel heard, even if you're doing something that and that they might disagree with. A hundred percent. I mean, that's why I said, like, the first step is to create space for conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you, you got you can't dictate this where the line is as the leader. You've got you've got to get your team to let you know where they think it is. And you've got to help them have this hard conversation about where they think it is. And then you're going to come up collectively with an answer that is going to that some people are going to disagree with. I mean, there's no way you can define this and, and please everyone on a team. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I was chiming in because my dissertation advisor, Dr. Elizabeth Morrison at NYU, the Stern school of business, she does a lot of research on what you are on voice. Voice is about making sure that your employees feel heard. And, And the bottom line is, is when you allow people to have voice, 
even if you don't end up implementing the ideas that they suggest, they are more likely to have, they're, they're likely to have higher satisfaction with the outcomes than if you don't listen to them, if you silence them, for example. Yeah. And, and, and that's really, what's, what's interesting to me is when I think about the juxtaposition of, of cultures that encourage voice versus cultures that sort of uh, demand silence yeah. or, or instill silence, it's, it's drastic when I think about these conversations. You can imagine in a culture where they encourage silence, maybe not intentionally, but that's the outcome. People just don't say anything. Okay, I, as a leader, I read this Just Workbook and now I want you all to tell me what you think. That's not gonna happen. No. And so I think it's really important what I see as a necessary preamble to just work is that the leader does an accurate assessment of themselves, their leadership style, and their culture. Because just work is something that's going to help in your culture, but if it will feel inauthentic if it's such a drastic change or departure from where you have been before. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you want to listen, challenge, commit, if you want to get to commitment, you've got to listen, you've got to invite challenge and be willing to challenge back. And then you, then you can move forward. But if you skip, listen and challenge, you'll never get commitment. Exactly. And, and I just want to make sure I just got a message. I know this is a technical thing that it was having difficulty with my audio. Am I okay? You sound great. Okay, good. All right. So Wesley, one last thought on the reading and then let's hear Tina's story. <laughs> um, my last thought is just that people want to be ethical and they say that yeah. they want to do the right thing. Um, but just remember that when someone says they're acting ethically, that um, ethic is not something that is standardized. And so no. there's yeah. many rubrics of being ethical. And so that saying that in itself is not an excuse or permission to do the thing that you think is right. A hundred percent. Really important. Mm, that's a very good point. And that's reminding me of, you know, we also have to be careful of ethical relativism. Um, yes. You know, where people are like, well, but I was in this context and everybody was stealing. And so that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. That's not so much, but I, I really like um, how you all are both being very nuanced in what, in the discussion points that you're raising and man, I miss this. I, I just, I really do. I wish that there were more public forums like this to have this nuanced kind of conversation. I mean, where in fact, Kim, you're actually, in, you're inviting constructive criticism of your work, for example. That's how we met. I really wish, I mean, and you all are both doing a lot to create those kinds of communities, but it's, it's very refreshing to actually participate in it. Well, thank you. That's my brown nosing. I'm not trying to brown nose. If you know me, I'm very direct and blunt. You are very direct. Yeah, it's, I'm very direct, but it's just, it's really nice. I, I do a lot of, I work by myself a lot because I'm yeah. a writer and an entrepreneur. So I'm at home in this office by myself a lot. It's nice to, to come together with people who may be different than me, but we can have a forum around this. So I, I'm really excited and happy about that. I'm going to, can't wait to tell my husband. Yeah. That's why I do yeah. this podcast. You said, I, I, I know, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We. Well, I, I want to. I, I was 
Well, I want to talk. I want you to talk a little bit about your podcast with your husband at, at the end. But first, let's hear your story, and then talk because yeah. I'm excited about your podcast. But let's hear your story. Yeah, yeah. we we don't have we did a podcast. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. We, okay. We're not doing it now. But so my story is: so I graduated from college in 1993 from James Madison University, and my first job after undergrad was at Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America. And I went through, you know, you go through a rotational program where you go to different divisions of the bank. And then I don't, it's not a bidding process, but people who have been exposed to you decide where they want to hire you. So I was hired. I was very happy. I was working right across from the White House. Wow. Yeah. Literally, sometimes uh, the the uh, sharpshooters uh-huh. will come into our building and go up the elevators. Oh, my God. And I was on a, I was on the elevator with them one time. Like, oh my God, you know, just, just <laughs> nervous. But they do that to, to like before big the inauguration, because they literally walked, we would have events in our building to watch it. But anyway, so I landed um, in this group in Nations Bank and I was the youngest black, I was the youngest person on the team initially. I was the youngest black person. There was an older black man who was very senior. He was like a, dad to me and uncle to me and uh, he was great but there was a white man an older white man um, I mean if I am 22 23 24 something like that 25 years old um, when I'm there he was probably in his 40s or 50 he looked older maybe than he actually was mm-hmm. but I remember that part of my job and I'm young I used to wear glasses so I would look older because uh-huh. I had contact, I had worn contact lenses before then, but I intentionally wore my glasses then to look, look older. older. Right. I would wear my, you know, my business suits. I wouldn't go in business casual yeah. for the most part. So one of my responsibilities was prospecting. So I had to meet new clients, and we worked in nonprofits. And in Washington D.C., where I was, nonprofits are huge. So I had gotten inroads into a big client. Well, we report out who our prospects are. This white man went to my boss, who was a white woman, and said, I have gotten feedback from this prospect that Tina is not doing a good job. And I think that, you know, either I need to shadow her or or replace her. He wanted the relationship. Yeah. So fortunately, we'll call my manager E, and that is the first initial of her name. She called me into her office. And she said, Tina, I want to let you know what has happened. Now, because you have worked with other people, I asked around and found out that that was not true. I do have some feedback for some things you can improve upon, but I want you to know that I'm supporting you. So in this story, to me, it demonstrates two kinds of behaviors, you know, sort of an upstander. I mean, she went above and beyond the, the call of duty by actually interviewing other people who have worked with me yeah, to figure out if she could corroborate that story. But I think um, I probably violated stereotypes when I went to Nations Bank because I have never really, I've been called strident, for example, because I think as a woman and as a black woman, some people expect me to cower or, to, but yeah. I've never been that since no. ever. Yeah. Never. Good. 
And That's so, why we've been successful. <laughs> yeah, but you know, sometimes I think what it does is it violates the stereotype because yeah. I, I don't think that I'm incompetent. And banking is a quantitative field, but I'm yeah. like, no, because I will stay until 2 a.m. to make sure I know the numbers. I think yeah. that offended people. Yeah. And they thought that I would be an easy mark. Yeah. So anyway, I hope that story was helpful. That is, thank you. I'm sorry that that happened, first of all. And thank you for telling the story. And and yeah, I mean, my, my guess is that that older white man thought that he could, he thought you were weak mm-hmm. and vulnerable and he thought he could get away with it. Yeah. He thought he could get away with taking your client. And he could not, thanks to you being confident and your boss standing up for your confidence. Yeah. And I will tell you, as a result of that experience, so I do this one thing where I tell my students or clients that it's critical that you not have a siloed reputation. Meaning if you're working in this division, that's great, but you need to go outside of the division. And those people also need to have a sense of who you are. So, you know, now it's like, I don't curse. So if someone says, oh my gosh, Tina Opie is so incompetent. She cursed me out. Everybody's going to say. No, she didn't. Yeah, exactly. They're going to say, that does not sound like Tina. You need to build your own reputation. And that is what, to to sort of uh, fortify yourself against prejudice or, you know, bullying. And to me, well, it wasn't bullying because he didn't do it directly to me, but it was. I think it was bullying. He was trying to take your, he was trying to take your stuff. Yeah. And and I think prejudice was wrapped up in there because I don't think it's a coincidence that he targeted the young black woman. Not a coincidence. No. Impossible to believe that that is a coincidence. When I heard your story, of course, I I was thinking about my own history. And so tell me if this sounds like it could be the case. I've been in places where I felt confident and Mm -hmm. where most of the time, I was actually right about some things um, when I worked. Uh, I used to work for Dell in tech support, um, mm-hmm. and I was uh, actually a cell support rep. So when someone's selling a new combination, they might say, well, this printer work with this scanner with this computer or whatever. And um, my manager at the time was someone who was just relatively new to the department and wasn't extremely technical. And I would, I would, she would say something, and I would, say I would correct her, I'll just point out that I probably maybe did not do it in the best way every single time. <laughs> but I was usually right. But I also felt that she would just try to say that I was wrong. And a lot of times because she wanted to, like, take me down a peg. Yeah. She thought that maybe I was too confident, or I was too, um, too secure in me being myself. And I yeah. needed to be more on edge and kind of like more of a shrinking violet in their presence to make sure I, I, that um, I didn't take up too much room. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that, did that seem like the case that the person felt that you were too good at your job or, and, and, or was it the person that felt like um, they would just be believed because the story would be plausible just because of the way that you looked? I honestly, Wesley, I'll be honest with you. I felt it was, he wanted what I had. There was, he because, you know, you get, I got the Rookie of the Year Award, for example. So I was doing well. And I, I don't know if he was trying to, Dr. Caritha Mitchell has this uh, research called Know Your Place Aggression. 
which is how if people perceive that you're claiming space to which you're not entitled, they will engage in behaviors to remind you of your proper place. So that to me could be what he was doing. Um, and it could also be the inverse, which is it's not him telling me I have to know my place. He's just, he feels entitled yeah. to whatever I he have. Yeah. yeah, whatever whatever is, is something that I, well, no, too bad. I mean, as a, as a white man, you know, as a, this person, if he was senior to me, he had been in banking much longer. And who is this whippersnapper coming in here, taking, you know, getting inroads into this big prospect? So probably, I don't, I don't know, but I do know that I have had people who tried to teach me what my place is. And, but that doesn't, it, it's funny because sometimes it's almost hard for me to process it that way because I don't, I never think of myself as beneath. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's like, I can see what they're trying to do, but it's almost funny because I'm like, okay. It's like when, when we're negotiating, I love when people assume that I'm incompetent. Yeah. Yeah. That is fabulous because that usually means I'm going to clean your clock and your mama's clock because yeah. you're not going to come prepared if the stereotype is that a black person, a black woman is incompetent, not good at numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't mean this to sound arrogant. Some people may hear this and think that no, I'm, this it, is it, confidence, it's, not arrogant. Yeah, it is. It's confidence. But I will tell you that when confidence comes, I've been told, and I actually posted about this. This is by a powerful white man in a, in a meeting. And I think he meant it as a compliment, or maybe not. I did a poll. He said that I'm a male female. That, I hate that. I was told by an employee, and he said this to the whole company. I had started this company, and, and this guy who worked uh, on the engineering team, this engineer, and I, he really, I, I know he was not trying to take me down a peg, but he stood up and he said, nobody at this company has bigger balls than Kim. And I'm like, oh, come on. Ovaries. First of all, ovaries. Because I'm like, testicles are very sensitive. Yeah, <laughs> you could not squeeze a baby out of a penis or a testicle. Um, it would, You would implode. Uh, sorry. That's probably too right, much. Wesley, we're, now now we, we need this shared siblinghood. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is not your fault, Wesley, that this guy said this. Yeah. That, that oh, no. Insane. I don't. Yes. No. No. Yeah, hashtag no, not no. all men. But it's, it's exactly. Definitely not all men. And, and, and anyone can be a sister regardless of gender. It's a, it's an intentional flip of the word. Yes. Yeah. So that that male, female or no one has bigger balls than Kim. Yeah. It's so in because that's based on stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. based on stereotypical it's, expectations. I, I think I think Wesley is drawing a really interesting distinction that I hadn't thought about, and this may be because of my own lived experience. But I immediately assumed in your story, Tina, that the that he thought you were weak, and that's why he did it, not because he thought you shouldn't be strong. Yeah, and I think as a as a white woman, I've been perceived as vulnerable, mm -hmm. but it's not. I think, well, that's not really true. I mean, like there was one time when I was working with an engineering team, and I had done some analysis, and that my engineering counterpart said, "Oh, you're doing." I was on the operations team, 
and the engineering lead said, oh, you're doing ops math again. And it was like partly an anti-ops bias and partly a gender bias because ops had a lot more women in it than engineering. Yeah. So like, so it does happen that, that he didn't like the fact, and my analysis I think was very good. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think he said that because it impressed him, not because I think it was, what did you call it? The Know your place aggression. Yes. Dr. Mitchell. Yeah. What's interesting, because I, I, I did like the distinction that Wesley made as well. To me, what comes to mind is that in some scenarios, I think this person thought he could take advantage of me. Yes. And what Wesley said to me is he may or may not have thought that I deserved yes. that prospect. Yes, exactly. So that, that's sort of to me, it's like the parsing. Can I, can, yes, let's parse that apart. And, and so, you know, the, the can they take advantage of me is the weakness vulnerability. Do I deserve that? Might mean in his mind, I'm attaining or about to attain a level of status that he doesn't think I deserve. I should not ascend that high in the status hierarchy. And if I am successful in getting this prospect, who knows what they might think of her? Yes. And I don't know which one it was. I, I think I potentially thought it was uh, the former mm-hmm. taking advantage. But I do think Wesley raises a good point, which yeah. is he also could have been like, girl, you, you don't deserve this. Yeah. Which is so funny because I'm like, how did I, didn't I get it? Yeah. Yes. Deserve is such an interesting concept, uh, isn't it? Uh, And uh, not really a helpful one, usually. I had a mentor who said to me, God help us if we get what we deserve. Exactly. (laughs) I I say that all, I mean, because, I mean, thank God for grace. Yes. I'm a Christian person and grace is unmerited favor. It's it's sort of like God or someone could jack you up, but they choose not to. Yeah. Because what you deserve is you know, is to get jacked up. <laughs> but I'm going to instead have a conversation with you, loving you, lovingly talk to you. And yeah. man, did I learn that a lot, getting married and having children. Yeah, yeah. And taking yeah. care of my elderly, you know, my older parents. That yeah. There's a lot of, anyway. Yeah, deserve is a, is a really weird word. Can I can I point out some another thing in your story that you kind of went past and sure. I just wanted to also like circle back uh, and double click on is that um, you mentioned as a word of advice to make sure that you have other people outside your department that can vouch for you or can actually can um, kind of verify your reputation and I don't know if that plan A B C D all these contingencies. <laughs> is something that people think about, at least naturally, especially if they don't see themselves as being vulnerable mm-hmm. or possibly someone conspiring mm-hmm. against them. And that's something that um, when I started in tech, I was I, I thought, you know, I just will get by on my merit. If I do well, I work hard, uh, I will be able to get far. And then it took me a while to realize like the, the reality as opposed to the dream that was sold about how things are. And I had to start saying, well, of course this person's lying. So of course nothing bad's going to happen to me and how that string of thinking doesn't always work and how that you have to, in some people or some places, make sure that you have this contingency plan. Um, what happens if, for instance, in your situation, that there, there was no contingency plan, that mm-hmm. there were no other people that your manager can verify with, 
or what if your manager didn't do the due diligence, then you could have been a place person that's vulnerable. But I also wanted to ask, was there any consequences for that? Yes, I had the same question. Consequences to me? For him. The the person, the the man. The guy for lying. I don't know. I never, I didn't ask. I think when I got called into E's office, I was flabbergasted. And I was, you know, a little nervous about yeah. that. And then, because she, she didn't tell me right away, we we talked, we had multiple conversations, but I didn't even ask. But he wasn't fired; he was still there. Did he, I just know that I I avoided him? After yeah. That. yeah, I didn't trust him. Yeah, well, if new people, you know, not that I was trying to blackball him, but I would if somebody was new coming, I would say just watch your back with him. Yeah, yeah. and that's the scary thing is that if there's no consequences they were like oh that's blah 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 he'll do that watch out for him yeah instead that's of like crap boys will be boys i'm like yeah that's exactly that's yes <laughs> and and it's more like you the more effort is put into protecting yourself uh and maybe helping protect other people than there is for the person who is the cause of some of this harm being the worried for man. their yeah, their future. Yeah, that's how, that's why there have to be consequences for bullying. Because if he didn't get any consequences, <laughs> he's going to go do that to someone else, and maybe to you again. You know. Unless yeah, and it's I always wrestle with you know, in, in many organizations, HR will say, well, we can't share what happened to the person because of privacy. I almost feel like if a perpetrator enacted something against me, I should be allowed to know. Yes. You know, what happened? Yeah. You don't have to give me the details, but you can say, I mean, like all the details, but you can say it affected X, maybe this in this large category. Yeah. And we also want you to know, blah, 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 because it in restorative justice, right? You you always want to be made whole. And it feels like there are these, there's a lack of closure because you don't know what happens. And you don't know if the person, if your supervisor, your manager, or the leader took you seriously, if this person is going to do it to you again, if they're going to do it to someone else. And so, as Wesley says, we spend a lot of cognitive energy, emotional labor, protecting ourselves. And I have wondered, I talk about this, Beth and I have this experience. I don't know if you all have ever had the experience of where you're talking to someone and it feels like you're talking soul to soul. Uh-huh. So you're you're sort of surpassing the visible veil. You're yeah. passing, it's not I'm not talking to a white woman or a black. I mean, we are, so please don't understand. I'm very proud of being a black woman. Yeah. Not, that's not the point. But we've been able to transcend almost in that moment. And when the points you were raising, Wesley, reminds us, it makes you feel like you're tethered to your identity and to yourself yeah. in such a way where you don't have as much liberation or freedom as you'd like, because that's the only thing that people are seeing about you, which is why prejudice and bullying and bias and yeah. discrimination are so um, antithetical to what we want in our organizations and in our cultures. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Right on. Uh, and I think also if it's sort of BS to say for privacy reasons, we can't tell you because you know what happened. It happened to you. <laughs> like what, you know, and they know what they did to you. So why don't you get to know what happened to them? I, I, exactly. I and, and it is because I'm like, whose rights are you protecting? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe if it if it hurt his rating, then they could say it hurt his rating. They don't have to tell you what rating that it was a one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. he's gonna, you know, this is gonna affect his annual evaluation or yeah. or something. But anyway. Exactly. All right. Well, why don't you? I think we're just about at time. Although I would love to talk to you all all day long. Tell us a little bit about your podcast with your husband. Well, so I don't know which podcast you're talking about. The one about staying married. Oh, yeah. So we were doing so. Can I say the name? We were doing Facebook Lives. My husband and I, we've been married for 23 years. We met in 1996, 1997. And then we got married in 2000. And we're a Christian couple. And we have, there are some things that, you know, it's probably very not mainstream, especially Mm -hmm. for a secular society. But what's interesting is, is people see us, my husband and I together, and they're like, you all really like each other. Like you really. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's we, true. There's an energy. I mean, I felt that energy when I met them. I mean, he's fine, first of all, but his <laughs> mind, his mind is beautiful. Yeah. And I don't mean a beautiful mind like the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I mean, hey, look, neurodivergent. I'm, I'm neurodivergent. He's, very, he's a literary beautiful mind. Yeah. He, he literally, I mean, it's, it's like, he's very smart and bright and curious He's also sexy and he's a great dad and he's a good, you know, so all those things. So we we were doing these, people would ask us, what, what are the secrets? And I felt like people wanted us to say things like leave gifts for each other or, <laughs> or, you know, yeah. give each other massages. And I'm like, look, we did this podcast and it was literally almost a day in the life. And we would work through conflict. We would talk about how we had worked through conflict. We would talk about what we thought were some of the key elements of success, like you finance, mm-hmm. parents, parenting, yeah. sex, yeah. career outlook, religion. I mean, like we, one of the things I said is, and this may be surprising to people, I really want someone, a Christian man because of my beliefs. Yeah. I, anyone else can marry who they want to, yeah. but I want a man who can pray for me. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we talked about those very personal things. We had thousands of people watching, but it ended. <laughs> we got into an argument right before we were supposed to go live. And I got on screen and I said, well, friend, I just had an argument. And he looked at me because <laughs> between the two of us, I am much more effusive Yes. And, you know, ex- I mean, I, I'm, I'm not as extroverted as people think, but I, I like to say I'm the waves that crash into the shore. He's the deep right. still water that's far The water out. runs deep. You, yeah. don't, you don't sort of know what he's thinking, but he looked at me in that moment. <laughs> that was our last show. He said, you told too much. I was like, Fred, how are we going to have a Facebook Live on authentic marriage? And we can't share with the people when we get into a conflict. But some people need, see, I'm ready to address the conflict right away. Some people need time to process it. So Kim, if we can figure out, we need to, we need to not do lives. I think what we need to do is pre-recording. Yeah. And then, and then if we, yeah, if you, that's what I think we need to do. But the Facebook, man, I'm telling you, I wish I I should be, I don't know if I can find that Facebook live. If I could find that footage, it was hilarious. His head whipped to me. He said, no, she did not. 
Just put your business out in the street. But anyway, I was gonna say cool. if that's how if if you're gonna go out, that is the note. That to is go the out way on. to go out. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> we went out, and but we had thousands of people tuning in, um, wow. and so I would, Kim. I'm so happy you brought that up because we are now empty nesters, and we have yeah, more, that's, maybe that's what you all need to do with your empty nest. Is we have more bandwidth now, emotionally and cognitively. Yeah, I think focus on something like that because we've had we we you know there are a lot of people who are hurting in their relationships. Yeah, and uh, it would be interesting to see what that might lead to. I love that. All right. Well, thank you, Tina. Thank you, Wesley. Loved this conversation, and wish it could have gone on for another two hours. So thank you for joining us. Uh, if you would like to join us on the podcast, please email us at hello at justworktogether.com and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And thank you for joining us and see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.